0: So tonight, I'm going to, my lecture topic or title is Thy Kingdom Come, is Social Justice, the End Goal for Christianity? Uh, it was actually from a title uh, um, or a statement that one guy said is humanitarianism, the end goal of Christianity. And so the original title was humanitarianism, but then that's not really what I meant. I meant something more like social justice, and you might think, uh, and then I realized that I stepped in a whole puddle of mess. Um, because I have a lot of things to explain on the front end. I almost have to front load some of these definitions, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let the definitions come as they come, uh, and I will define social justice in a minute. <clears throat> but for the past few years, I've become increasingly concerned about what I'm calling younger evangelicals, uh, and when I say younger evangelicals, I'm speaking about 20 to 40-year-olds who attend church, that, uh, a church that sees the Bible as authoritative, for the most part, uh, and who tend to think left on issues. Okay, So I'm calling young evangelicals, they go to kind of a, a church that they believe the Bible is authoritative, but they lean left on issues, or many issues. I could use the word progressivist evangelicals, uh, perhaps, but I tend to see this as happening widely among those who are younger uh, in the evangelical world. So this is in contrast to the way we were use the word evangelical typically, uh, which can mean uh, anti-intellectual and moralistic. <coughs> or evangelical could mean politically conservative older white folk. I don't mean either one of those. Uh, in fact, many of these younger evangelicals, um, as I'm using the term, see other, these, these other evangelicals as a part of the problem with society. Uh, and I think that this will become clear as I go through this talk. Um, My concern is that I've seen people become very involved in their churches But over time they begin to diminish or even despise uh, doctrine Uh, uh, Something exclusive uh, Something unnecessary Something burdensome Uh, They become apathetic about Christian morality And then some uh, lose their faith in Christianity altogether Okay Um, in the exclusive claims of Christ, if you want to put it that way. Yet I've seen those same people remain in those churches because of the social good that the churches are doing. I'm talking about evangelical churches, I'm not talking about mainline liberal. I've seen this not only with those who come to Labrie, which is very common, but also with those who I went to church with and the people I've been friends with growing up. Uh, I've seen a seminary professor leave the seminary and church altogether because... Uh, uh, The church and the seminary were not about the mission to the poor uh, Or not enough Um, The same man told me that my work at Labrie was not true gospel work Because I was not working with the poor Um, When I told him that I helped those poor in spirit He said um, that that's nice but not enough I've seen churches relax on doctrinal and moral issues In order to maintain their mission to the marginalized And I've seen several young evangelicals come through Labrie, express their frustration at Christian churches which remain conservative and keep wealth and resources in their pockets. Now I'm sympathetic actually to a lot of this, not all of it, but much of it. Um, But what's worried me is that those who are battling to fight structural evil, as they might put it, are losing their faith in the institution of the church and losing their faith in Christ. Uh, So that's partly what led me to approach this topic Uh, Jamie Smith, a Canadian theologian Wrote in an article of how he visited a Jesuit ministry Uh, And they were rolling out their mission statement And this is what he writes Long on talk of justice, diversity, and service The word God nowhere appears in the document Jesus never makes an appearance in the mission of this Jesuit ministry Or university in strange and often unintended ways, the pursuit of justice, shalom, and a holistic gospel can have its own secularizing effect. What begins as a gospel-motivated concern for justice can turn into a naturalized fixation on justice in which God never appears. And When that happens, justice becomes something, all <coughs> else, to get, um, something else altogether, an idol, a way to effectively naturalize the gospel flattening it to a social amelioration project in which the particularity of Jesus as the revelation of God becomes strangely absent. So that's a chock-full quote. But what he's basically saying is that um, uh, this pursuit for justice um, can sometimes make the gospel almost secular, no longer truly Christian. And what begins as a concern for gospel-motivated justice sometimes turns into a, a fixation on trying to have justice here and now, to, to naturalize uh, justice, to naturalize shalom. And you can tell because um, the improvements of society has nothing to do with Jesus. He, said, he sees that that's happening among evangelicals. I see that happening too. And so that's one of my concerns in this talk is to look at how has this come about and how might we think about it. Um, So I'm going to look at a brief history, might be a little bit wrong or controversial, you can help me with it. Uh, And then I'm going to look at three points of um, the distinctions between uh, this kind of young evangelical social justice and kind of traditional social Christian concern, something like that. But before I approach a brief history, I should define social justice. This word is ambiguous and some say that it has power precisely because it's ambiguous. It's elastic. It can be used for almost anything and for any group. Um, and who can be against acts of justice? Who's going to say that you're against that? Uh, and why is it not just justice? Isn't it justice by definition to be social? So it, doesn't, it sounds redundant to say social justice. I'm using the word social justice because it is so ambiguous. In the ambiguous sense, I mean this, to seek ways of making society more just to all people. Okay. To seek ways of making society more just to all people. <clears throat> so how do we go about seeking justice in society? Um, and by the way, I'm not gonna be talking about procedural justice, distributive justice, proportionality, you can, we can discuss that afterwards. So throw that out of your mind, okay? I'm just talking about major pictures here. Um, But how do we go about seeking justice in society? And that's the main question. It seems to be the one that everyone's talking about. Even action heroes are involved in these discussions around social justice, Black Panther, Wonder Woman. I don't know if Captain Marvel was, but I hear that it's supposed to be. Um, How do we go about seeking justice as Christians in the church, in society? Uh, in what ways is this part of the church's mission is it central, is it the end goal of Christianity so let me do uh, this historical flow of ideas, are you with me I believe that this uh, movement for social justice um, uh, this kind of this evangelical, young evangelical bent to the left has its roots in liberation theology in the 1960s. Uh, it arose during a politically tumultuous time. Uh, JFK got assassinated, uh, Vietnam War, uh, lots of major social changes were happening between 1968 and 1972. Massive changes. Uh, and during that time uh, there was a lot of people becoming more politically minded, politically aware, politically involved. And so instead of worrying about the intellectual challenge of atheism, a lot of Christians sought to engage social and economic oppression in society. This would show up as black theology, feminist theology, and gay theology. It began, though, as a theology of the poor. Uh, Liberation theology began as a roman uh, Roman Catholic theology in Latin America. And this is what's important. It was shaped by Marxist ideology. Uh, there There was systemic oppression of the poor. And these Roman Catholic priests, as they read scriptures, felt that God had a bias toward the poor. That means God always sided with the poor, privileged the poor, the voice of the poor. Throughout scripture, they saw God's desire was to throw off oppression. And this is most evident in the event called the Exodus. Where uh, these slaves cry out, uh, hi Samuel. Uh, these uh, I haven't seen him for three days. Uh, these poor slaves cried out, and God liberated them by um, by pushing against the uh, the the structural oppression of Egypt and toward the liberation of the poor. Okay. Uh, and so a lot of people will look to this. Thank you. Uh, will look to this event as uh, the archetypal event of, uh, and almost the primary interpretive lens in which to understand Scripture. You look at the Exodus event in order to understand Scripture. That God is always siding with the poor, and you and you hear through the prophets always this kind of uh, castigation um, or this kind of excoriation against the poor. I mean, against the rich, <clears throat> and it's just uh, the the rich. Um, have oppressed you, the religious authorities have oppressed you, and the poor need to be heard. Uh, You need to have more just scales, not inequalities in scales. We also see in Jesus a continual condemnation of political and religious powers uh, um, that oppress the poor. These these liberation theologians felt that there was biblical merit to be revolutionary in overthrowing evil economic structures. Uh, So sometimes they call for Um, violent overthrow, that God would side for violent overthrow of these evil structures. Benino, Jose um, Miguel Benino, I believe that's how you say his name, he was a Protestant, and he did a famous book called Doing Theology in a Revolutionary Situation in the 60s, or maybe early 70s. And he called the church to overcome its attitude toward privatization and um, and to fight against the status quo, to become aware of how it fits into the status quo and to join in the revolutionary struggle with the poor. What made this particularly Marxist, and Benino was uh, very transparent about his Marxist leanings, uh, and what would influence these other movements in North America that I mentioned, black theology, feminist theology, and so on, was uh, his call for critical consciousness. Critical consciousness. This basically means that someone must become aware of their own condition, And the power structures that cause oppression. Think of being woke. Mm -hmm. Kind of has the same idea. To be aware of systems of oppression and how you fit into the cog of that. Or how you're crushed by it. With black theology of the 60s, it affirmed black power as an inward affirmation of the essential worth of blackness. And that this black experience of oppression was authoritative. It was an authoritative lens in which to understand all things theological. So they would have black Moses, black Jesus. Um, With feminist theology, it was about women's experience as primary, even to the point that it denounced scripture as thoroughly um, patriarchal and therefore oppressive. So there was uh, a feminist reading of scripture needed to do away with a lot of patriarchal texts. Um, And patriarchal readings and even the language about God needed to change instead of calling God the Father God the Son uh, they would say being or um, or something like this Um, or uh, or beside it um, God my mother something like this And this had a large influence and touched um, this had a large influence in society and It touched some evangelicals, but for the most part was a liberal Christianity uh, and when we think of liberal Christianity, this is kind of the inheritance. Uh, and many still exist today. The United Church, the Unitarian Church, some Methodist churches really hold to this kind of mainline liberal view. And it's, it's advanced since then, but that's just the basic concept. okay? Uh, Lukianoff and Haidt, they're both uh, contemporary secular liberals. Uh, wrote a book recently called *The Coddling of the American Mind*. Okay, it just came out last year, and they want to look and they look at the effects of neo-Marxism on campuses today. They speak about how the major shifts that happened in the '60s seem similarly formative to college students' political leanings and their desire for social justice today. So they they look at the '60s and all that political tumultuousness. And how it was reshaping theology, as I just demonstrated, uh, or, or spoke about. Well, Lukianov <clears> and Haidt said that that's happening today. Political political is politically tumultuous, and it's shaping people's political and theological leanings. Uh, Lukianov and Haidt doesn't say theological leanings, but I am. And so they want to talk about uh, what's happened since 2009 to 2018. They think that it's a, it's a seismic or a tumultuous period. And just, I'm gonna read this out, and it will be shocking about all this stuff that's happened in just the past few years. So uh, from 2009 to present day, we have seen monumental shifts. In 2009, Obama was elected. And by the way, um, they're talking about the time period. So height is, is a moral psychologist or a, an evolutionary psychologist. And he, uh, and he looks at the most formative time when people shape their imagination around the world is usually between 14 to 24. That's kind of the most formative time for people. And, uh, and so they're going through this timeline to talk about people who are now in campuses today uh, or in their 20s today were shaped by this time period. So that's why it's relevant for our discussion. So in 2009, Obama was elected, uh, the first black president In 2000, and for America. In 2010, there was Occupy Wall Street, raising awareness of social economic inequalities. Uh, in 2011, Tyler Clementi died by suicide, bringing awareness of LGBT bullying. In 2012, there was the Sandy Hook massacre, bringing gun control to the forefront of political discussions. And Trayvon Martin, a young black man, was killed by a police officer. In 2012, that same police officer was exonerated and Black Lives Matter was founded. In 2014, the Ferguson riots after Michael Brown was killed by a police officer. By the way, I'm not mentioning those several uh, young black men that were killed by police officers, just some major ones. In 2015, the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage. Caitlyn Jenner publicly identified as a woman and a white supremacist attacked on a black church in Charleston, South Carolina, all in 2015. In 2016, a terrorist killed 49 people in a gay nightclub uh, in Florida. North Carolina requires transgender people to use bathrooms according to birth sex, and Colin Kaepernick kneels in protest at an NFL game, which is the same year as the nomination and election of Donald Trump. In 2017, Trump declares Muslim bans, that's their word, and women march against Trump. Trump bans transgender from military service. Trump speaks positively (coughs) about both sides at a white supremacist march where one is killed and several are injured the time of the largest mass shooting in America, of 58 in Las Vegas, and the start of the Me Too movement. In 2018, another mass shooting at Parkland High School, and that was just um, at, at, at print. At, um, they wrote that this is happening at print. You know. That's a lot, and I, and I skipped a lot of details. And so you can imagine that this has had a huge impact on how we think. So Lukanoff and Haidt believe that these events were formative in shaping a strong inclination towards social justice among college-aged people. At the same time, these college students were in classes that promoted a neo-Marxism that spoke critically against places of privilege and against conservatism, which wanted to maintain the status quo. So while these were happening more broadly, um, I've been talking about you know, culturally, They've also had an influence on what I'm calling young evangelicals. It has inspired a whole generation to become more politically involved, if not, um, uh, and if not politically involved, at least politically conscious, aware, or woke. Okay. The US election had a particular impact on evangelicalism, <laughs> seeing a large evangelical <clears throat> contingent vote conservatively. Um, sorry, that was a, it's a sentence. Let's see if I wrote it correctly. <laughs> seeing a large evangelical contingent vote conservatively for a man who represents every privilege and has held that privilege in a morally questionable way. This has pressed those who identify as evangelical, those who do not associate with the conservative evangelical voting bloc, all the more left and more sympathetic to the cause of the marginalized and oppressed. So what I'm saying is that the election of Trump uh, by um, a lot of conservative evangelicals only Hardened uh, the posture of young evangelicals to move left okay, in, in the midst of this poli- political unrest. Uh, and this has placed tremendous strain on the faith of many Christians as they struggle to seek, out, um, they seek justice in today's society. However, this has caused young evangelicals to look for a different base from which to uh, function and promote the Christian faith in society. They've moved away from a conservative base, including orthodox doctrines and morals, toward more more sympathetic to those marginalized and oppressed. Which is not a bad thing. Uh, Yet knowingly or not, they have placed their Christian faith on a neo-Marxist base. uh, And in doing so, have undermined critical aspects to the very faith they promote. To understand this better, let's now turn to the differences between what I'm calling Christian Marxism just a shorthand, and Christian orthodoxy. Now, I'm a generalist, and I wrote that as the last sentence in my lecture. So if I have changed the words later on, um, I apologize. So I might say something else other than Christian orthodoxy, like biblical Christianity or something. I hope that's (laughs) okay. So uh, so now I want to look at three ways of distinguishing between Christian Marxism and Christian orthodoxy. But two little caveats before I begin. Uh, I wanna say it's important to look and identify these differences. Uh, It helps us think more critically about why we believe what we believe and why we believe we should act in certain ways. So it's important to have critical reflection. I also hope to show that holding to an orthodox Christianity does not repress, but encourage us toward good renewal in society and in our own lives. We'll see if you're convinced. But before looking at these differences, I want to note the importance of sharing the passion of those who want to see the church more involved in social change. I wholeheartedly hold that. Uh, Often the church has been guilty um, of attending to its own programs instead of the needs of society. Churches predominantly are not as wealthy as people think they are, just as pastors, uh, especially in Canada though there are certainly some churches that are extraordinarily wealthy, and I grew up in an extraordinarily wealthy church. Um, I won't go into that history. Uh, Nevertheless, the church must reflect on what the gospel calls us to culturally, whether rich or poor. And so while I hope to bring reflection to those who have adopted a Marxist foundation for their Christian belief, I also hope that it may call those who have accepted a sit-on-my-hands faith to see how the gospel does call us to be more radical in society than we often are. Any questions before this? Okay. So I have three and I'm going to move from the smaller to the bigger. So I'm going to talk about the kind of the nature of the individual, Uh, and then I'm going to be talking about discussions within community um, or groups, and then government and society at large, before I make some kind of positive Uh, examples of how people who have held to um, traditional doctrine and social renewal at the same time. In fact, um, the largest movements in Christianity have done that. But before that, I'm going to look at these three. The first one, the first difference is on the nature of the human person. In Marxism, the individual is seen as essentially good, uh, but obstructed by unjust structures. With Marxism, it was capitalism that held people down. However, now it is any structure that stands against a person's ability to self-define or self-identify. This has major impact on how culturally, we think of identity politics. Um, uh, so identity politics has become the, the catchword, or the catchphrase for this kind of idea. But my point is a theological reflection on this. Uh, and I'll get into identity politics particularly in my second point for the liberation theologian they saw the poor as essentially a favored group by God God always stands with the oppressed as a result people have backed away from preaching personal sin and a need for repentance particularly to the poor Uh, this is because the major issue is not personal sin It is structural evil that has caused these people to function in deformed ways, such as drinking, smoking pot, domestic abuse, gambling, examples people have long used of people in poverty. These have simply been ways people have coped with the injustices of societal structures. If we radically change or remove these social structures, these social evils or structural evils, Um, In order for these people to be free, no longer economically dependent on their ingenuity or some capitalistic notion, then that person will truly be free and functioning. Uh, They will be healthier and whole. Outside the church, particularly in universities, we see a call to remove all forms of privilege, quote-unquote, or constraint so that a person may be able to realize their full selves. This, moves a removal, um, uh, this creates a removal of traditional marriage, traditional family structures, binaries in gender, sexuality, and more. Uh, it's a call to make oneself according to one's own inner being. Okay, this is more campus stuff. No one should be able to define you or label you. That's simply system or structure. That's not self-chosen. This is, in fact, seen as oppressive. And while young evangelicals often don't go as far as that, though some do, they are enticed by this form of thinking, that perhaps society does have too many structures in place, and that a person should be liberated to live as they see fit, as long as, and this is the Christian caveat, as they fulfill a love ethic. They should live as they wish, as long as they fulfill a love ethic. If they profess a love for God and a love for others, then what should hinder them from doing as they see fit? society. This is backed biblically, such a young evangelical would say, because a person has worth. A person has inherent dignity given to them by God. This is a fundamentally biblical idea that still has currency in our culture, at least theoretically, Um, though someone like Harari and others will call it into question. For someone to have dignity and for society to recognize that dignity one must allow that person to, um, the freedom to define themselves. So if you're saying that they have freedom and dignity, then they should have the freedom to define themselves. That's how, they have, uh, that's how you recognize someone's dignity, for them to define themselves. Uh, yet this cuts directly against the biblical vision of what a person is and what gives person dignity. <clears throat> Biblically, a person's dignity is not according to their own internal logic, but according to um, God having created them. Because God has created a person in God's image, that person is first responsible to being in that image. It also means that others have a responsibility to respect the dignity of others or of that other person, not because of some inherent autonomous value, but a value contingent on their being made by God. So that means that you respect someone, not because they have some kind of autonomous inherent value, That's not tethered to anything other than their self-identity, but because God made them. That's how the Christian sees dignity. And this cut against racism, sexism, and all forms of oppression. Um, This is why the Bible speaks against murder, because their blood will cry out of injustice before God, who holds the scales of justice in his hands. However, the Bible also sees that while everyone is made in the image of God, and thus giving them dignity, it also sees as every person falling short of reflecting and representing God's image. Um, Persons fail to live with dignity given to them. It's because they've tried to live according to their own ways rather than to God's ways. Um, Biblically, this is known as sin. It's not living in accordance to the purposes of God, Um, and the failure to recognize that God is over us, even over our own bodies, (coughs) um, even over our identity. And so dignity is not something just given to us, it's something that's lived into. Yet we must admit that we fail to do right by God, by others, and even by ourselves. Original sin itself was Adam and Eve to try to become like God, but in their own power, rather than trying to abide in him. When they turned from God's purposes, they distorted themselves. And as a result, this moved um, out into the family. So there was personal distortion, which moved out into the family, with Cain murdering his brother Abel, and out into society where Cain's descendant, Lamech, wanted to go beyond justice and to avenge anyone 77 times. As a result, when we speak of justice and liberation, the, the... The Orthodox Christian must speak of personal sin and personal repentance first. Not only, but first. It is not as if there aren't structural evils. The Christian fully affirms structural evils. It's not as if these structural problems do not exacerbate problems. Uh, If a young black man is caught with marijuana and then convicted, it causes long-lasting problems, uh, not just for him, but for society at large. Um, This is the premise of Michelle Alexander's recent book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. It causes them to lose the ability to vote and lose state benefits. Um, There are major structural issues that must be faced. So there might be personal sin in that young man's life, but there are certainly other things around it that only exacerbate the problems, structural evils, like the prison system. and perhaps the racism of judges or uh, something like that. However, as we seek structural change, we cannot abandon the need to proclaim the need for personal repentance. The early church made major social changes by calling people not to live according to their own designs, but according to God's design. Many of these people uh, who became Christians did so at great cost to themselves, and many were already poor. Marty Kyes, a colleague of mine from Southborough, Le Brie, said that her professor at an Ivy League school put it, the Christians created the poor. What the professor meant by this is that the poor were actually unseen in ancient cultures. They were nobodies. However, the Christian church said that they bore the same dignity as any aristocrat because they were made in the image of God. Yet we see time and again in the New Testament letters Paul and other apostles calling these people who were seen as fools in society even the poor, seen as fools in society as seeking Christ's likeness and that they should no longer live as sinners but as sinners saved by grace. So even to the poorest of the poor Paul and Peter didn't give them excuse but called them into repentance as well. Uh, They should seek to be like Christ in purity through the work of God's Spirit. We may say that God does have an emphasis on making sure we care for the poor and for the marginalized, yet they, like all others, must repent of their own personal sin and come uh, into God's people as equals. This meant that slaves needed to do right toward their masters, and women needed to do right toward men, as two examples, or actually wives toward husbands, technically. Sorry about that. Uh, See, the gospel was giving them a new liberation, that the slave and master were equal in dignity. That was a radical notion. And that men and women were equal in dignity. That the poor were equal in dignity to the rich. That was a radical. Uh, It was a radical change in society, yet at the same time they were equal also in sin. They were equal in dignity and also equal in sin. All have fallen short of the glory of God. As a result, the writers of the New Testament letters would call for all persons to abide in what God has established in Christ for them and for society. It was in this call for personal repentance that true extensive change began to happen. Uh, it began at the personal level, but it had massive societal and later, later structural effects. And I, and I have to show that now. Okay. So so basically, in summary, is that the Neo-Marxist view is that. The, uh, the individual has autonomous value in which the structural evils will keep down, and so therefore the neo-Marxist is calling them to remove all that. Even the Christian Marxist is saying uh, that's the problem, and so um, uh, I remember, and so sometimes churches will kind of diminish uh, Christian morality or Christian doctrine as something as unnecessary, and that even the church itself can be seen as a part of the oppressive structure, and so we just need to remove it so that a person can come to understand themselves and define themselves but the the traditional christian position is that dignity comes by god making someone and that we're all equal in dignity uh we're also all equally fallen so none of us have superiority over one another no matter where we find ourselves in the system as oppressors or as victims but in in holding that that actually creates huge social change Uh, My second point, the difference is, um, and it's actually what Lukanoff and Haidt call is, the neo-Marxist position is common enemy politics, and the traditional Christian one is common humanity politics. So common enemy politics and common humanity politics. Um, I think you'll find this very um, interesting. The second difference between Christian Marxism and biblical Christianity is a fruit of how the individual was seen. Um, so, or fruit from, so if you see the individual in a certain way, there's fruit from that. With Marxism, what has emerged is now called identity politics. Um, that's rooted in a tract by some black feminists in 1977. Mark Leela, who's a secular liberal, uh, says identity politics is. Political Romanticism, which is, he defines it here, an urgent need to reconcile self and world. Leela says, Romantics see society itself as something dubious, an imposed artifice that alienates the individual self from itself, drawing arbitrary lines, creating enclosures, and forcing us into costumes that are not our own making. So again, that idea of the autonomous person. So this makes sense of the autonomous individual against oppressive structures. Yet such individual experience of oppression moves into what uh, Lukianov and Haidt call tribalism. This is because individuals of similar experience or of similar consciousness of being black, of being female, um, are drawn together for social action against a common enemy. Identifying a common enemy is an effective way to enlarge and motivate, motivate your tribe. I'll say that one more time. This is Lukinoff and Identifying a common enemy <clears> is an effective way to enlarge and motivate your tribe. Another important aspect to this group mentality is the priority of the oppressed voice. Marxist social and political analysis deems all aspects of reality divided between victim and oppressor. The oppressor is a part of the structures of power, a part of the status quo, um, and they don't have a reason to question it. However, the victims do have reasons to question the structures that be. The problem is, is that victims are often without voice and maybe even without full awareness of their oppression. Therefore, it is important that they first become aware of their own oppression. So Paul Fryer uh, I know that's wrong, unless anyone speaks Portuguese, does anyone speak Portuguese? Okay, a Catholic educator in the northeastern Brazil spoke of this in regard to the poor as conscientiación. so basically, yeah, just work with that one, Um, basically of becoming aware of one's own oppression. The second task is that the oppressed be able to speak for themselves. Some Latin American liberation theologians refuse to have critical dialogue with European or North American theologians because that would simply allow the oppressors to circumscribe the discussions um, within within the structures of power. Rather, the oppressed need to be able to speak from their own experience, and this voice given priority becomes authoritative, unquestionable. So the voice of the oppressed becomes unquestioned because it needs to challenge the power structures. Now, the Christians should see the importance of giving voice to those who are marginalized. Um, There is importance to giving space and even embracing the other, uh, which is a very Christian notion. I'll speak on that more later. However, this structure, this power structure, denies a common humanity from which to speak together about issues facing us all. In fact, this Marxist analysis of power structures has only created further fragmentation rather than a shared life, a shared society. Power dynamics between the oppressor and the victim can extend in multiple and varied ways. The study of this is called intersectionality, uh, which states, I know that some of you who are at university, intersectionality is old hand, but some of us do not understand it so well, But intersectionality uh, states that uh, a black woman's experience cannot be captured by the summation of black experience and female experience. There's a unique experience of being a black woman that cannot be captured by adding black experience and female experience together. Okay, there's something unique. So intersectionality is, by definition, an analytical tool on how power relations are intertwined and mutually constructing. So, so just bear with me. I'm trying to explain it. So each aspect of each human needs to be identified. So each of you need to be identified in different ways, in different aspects. If you are in any way, if this applies, to, if any of these words apply to you, able-bodied, cisgender, heterosexual, white, male upper-class, or fertile, you are privileged. You are oppressed in various ways if you identify with aspects such as infertile, poor, female, non-white, gay, transgender, or disabled, just to name a few. It is important to identify different ways that power dynamics can affect us, not just in general ways, but specific intersecting ways. However, uh, certain interpretations of intersectionality, um, Lukanoff and Haidt say, can turn tribalism way up. It's like turning tribalism to eleven. If you've seen Spinal Tap. Okay. Uh, speaking as an X sets up walls. That in, uh, this is Leela actually speaking. Um, so when I say speaking as an X, like so, speaking as a gay Asian, I think. Okay, it's from a position of privilege, or not a position of privilege. Is, uh, well, it's kind of, yeah. It's a it's a position of the oppressed voice that must be given priority. <laughs> so it's it's like a morally privileged position in a way. Okay. Speaking, uh, and this is how Leela speaks about this power dynamic happening when the the oppressed speak. Speaking as an X sets up walls against questions, which by definition come from a non x perspective, and it turns the encounter into a power relation. The winner of the argument will be whoever has invoked the morally superior identity and expressed the most outrage at being questioned. <laughs> That's good. I hope you caught that. Instead of seeking to find a way of living together, such a posture can find easily common enemies everywhere. Even language itself, the very place where a common bond bond should be found is suspect. So trigger words kind of thing. There's lots of examples in uh, Lukanoff and Haidt's book, The Coddling of the American Mind. I highly recommend it, uh, just as a helpful read. This can be seen in society, society, and particularly on campuses, but this is also seen in the church. Young evangelicals who want to give not only priority to the victim, whoever they perceive that to be, but also they want to silence those who are within the category privilege. Once in Libri at a lunch discussion, a young woman asked me if there were any differences between a Christian community and church. A very innocuous question. We had a lovely discussion for about an hour and a half, however... Unbeknownst to me, three young seminary students from Seattle, I won't say which one, approached each of our other guests and told them that this was an unsafe space for people to ask honest questions. It was unsafe because I spoke with answers instead of allowing each person to say what differences meant to them. So instead of allowing each person to speak from their own perspective, and I was trying to explain the difference between Christian community and church from a traditional perspective, then it was created, He said, um, they said, three of them, said it was an unsafe space to ask questions. I didn't discover this until many weeks later when a young, another young woman in tutorial, that's when we meet one-on-one, in tutorial told me that she felt that, she, fact, she said, I feel like I can really trust you. I think you're really trustworthy. And I was like, well, thanks. And she goes, I said, why did you not think that? And they're like, well, these three people. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was very angry Um, uh, so when I asked he told me the whole story Uh, and in fact they created a deep distrust throughout the community for weeks and there were several people distrusting us because we were the ones in authority Uh, and it took a long time for us to overcome just that Uh, and what amazed me most is how easily that distrust was gained just by mentioning I was not trustworthy even though I had given you know and I had been with them for a week, someone just coming in for two days and just saying this is a place that's not safe, created, people created, um, it created distrust with so much ease. I was shocked. But this shows up in other ways in the church as well. Many young evangelicals do not want to know what the Bible says in discussions, particularly around sexuality and gender. Um, rather, it's more important to allow the victim's experience to be authoritative in discussions of truth and what shared life should look like from that perspective. The terms should be dictated by the victim, not by a common humanity. The beginning of change is to disallow the voice of tradition or the voice of any perceived authority. And yet I I believe that this is an ideological coup that fragments community. It creates tribalism. Leela, um, as I said, as a secular liberal himself, decries that identity politics only further polarizes American society. He's writing as an American. Lukanoff and Haidt, both secular liberals of various stripes, also bemoan the loss of common humanity and civil dialogue. Also Americans. It's a call to our common humanity where we might find hope and where we might make changes together. <coughs> This is certainly the biblical witness. And so looking off and Hyde point to Martin Luther King as seeking structural changes by appealing to a common humanity. Mm-hmm. King often spoke of all people as brothers and sisters, of the need for forgiveness and love and of the words of Jesus. He also spoke of the American Constitution and the American Dream, um, which uh, the Constitution points to an equality that um, of all human beings given to them by their Creator. While Lukinoff and Haidt see Martin Luther King as appealing to a shared linguistic structure, the Christian may go further to say that Martin Luther King wasn't just appealing to a shared sense, but was appealing to the true authority of reality and the true authority of Scripture. The Bible gives us a structure from which to ground our common humanity. The common bond is that each person is made by the Creator, as Martin Luther King said, and that each person stands in the need of mercy of Jesus. We need to proclaim freedom not just for the poor, but also for the poor in spirit, who might be quite wealthy. Jesus spoke of his Father who gave rain and sun to the um, who gave rain and sun to the wicked and to the righteous alike, and that this was paradigmatic for which to forgive even our enemies. Um. So it was this common humanity that pushed us away from tribalism to try to find a common humanity by us being created and by us needing repentance. This is what produced liberation and radical social change in the early church. The call for a common humanity in creation and in redemption relativized the power structures between people groups. In 1 Peter, written by one of Jesus' followers, Peter calls the slave to accept the authority of their masters and to do right by them because it's pleasing to God. That sounds really harsh. (laughs) At the same time, masters are not only continually called to be kind to their slaves, but to treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Philemon, um, Philemon, to whom Paul the Apostle wrote, is to receive back his runaway slave Onesimus, no longer as a slave, but more than as a slave, a beloved brother. That's what Paul wrote. So this so this slave, Onesimus, had run away, um, or not, not necessarily run away, but had left for some kind of domestic dispute between the master, uh, Philemon. And he went to Paul in jail because he was um, uh, uh, Philemon's kind of friend. Uh, and Paul is writing with an authority and saying, I want you to receive... Um, uh, Onesimus back, but I and so he's he's um, he's sending him back, kind of keeping this position in place, but in a renewed way. That no longer should you should receive him as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother in Christ. He said, in fact, Paul says, receive him as if you were receiving my, me. Hmm. <clears throat> so the legal form of slavery is retained. But master and slave are to relate no longer as master and slave, but as brothers. So this common humanity relativizes this power dynamic. Not only do we see this with slavery, but we also see this in every aspect of social relations in the early Christian church. There are several identifiable groups. Men and women, parents and children, masters and slaves, emperor and citizens. Yet in each of them, the early church promoted... How they were not free to be independent of one another, but now united in Christ. And within this renewed humanity in Christ, they were to use their freedoms to serve one another, to be slaves to one another. In fact, when they start getting into groups, um, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Paul. Paul says hogwash. That's what we say in the South, hogwash. (laughs) You don't like hogwash, that's bad stuff. And uh, he's like, "That's, that's, that's no good. We need to know that we are all one in Christ. Can Christ be divided against himself? So he's really appealing to a common humanity in creation and in redemption. This was done continually in the New Testament letters, not as an appeal to rights, but to God's authority over all peoples, to whom they owed the love God had extended to them while they were still enemies. It was through this inner freedom in Christ, not given or taken away by the state, that enabled people to, the resolve to seek structural changes with patience and with trust in God's prevailing will. And so here's some beautiful quotes from a guy named Richard Bachham. Uh, he's a theologian. Um, uh, he was in Aberdeen or I'm not sure, Edinburgh. Um, but he says this, Such inner freedom in and despite oppressive structures is not only real, but essential to the cause of liberation from oppressive structures, had Rosa Parks not had a measure of inner freedom, she would never have refused to sit at the back of the bus in Montgomery, Alabama, and thus trigger the movement that brought Martin Luther King to prominence. Mm-hmm. Richard Backham says it uh, um, he says it also well in his um, uh, about this summary of what I'm just about to say of what I just talked about, so this is I'm letting Bachham summarize and making the point of my second point. The contribution of the New Testament's insights into the nature of real freedom as liberation from enslavement to self-interest and freedom to give oneself for others is also important. The oppressed who long for freedom are not truly liberated from the system that oppresses them so long as the freedom they desire is only the freedom the oppressors have. Freedom for themselves, no matter what this entails for others. So he's saying that uh, um, uh, the power dynamic that um, is happening with neo-Marxism is, is to remove the oppressor so that, so that the victim can have the privileged voice. And so it's not just trying to find equality, but trying to have a reversal of power. Okay. Uh, and uh, Bauckham's saying if you're doing that then you're actually just exacerbating the same system. You're only doing you're only perpetuating the same structural evil. Um, and so he's saying you're not truly liberated if you're pursuing freedom in this way. Freedom for themselves, no matter what this entails for others, is not true liberty. In such circumstances, the struggle for liberation is simply a mirror image of the system it opposes. It becomes ruthless in its self-interest creates as many victims as it liberates, and produces a new kind of tyranny in place of the old. However, outward liberation worthy of the name requires people who have been freed to live for others and for all others, even for their oppressors. So he's saying what's true liberation? Not to grab the power, but to be able to be a servant to all. That you're able to be a slave of love to all. That's true freedom. And so it removes group conflict or tribalism and calls for a common humanity. So instead of a common enemy politic, it's calling for a common humanity politic. And this is what Christianity does. My third and final point before I just have some quick examples of of social concerns from traditional Christians. (coughs) Okay, so this turns us to the final difference between Christian Marxism and the biblical witness. The role of the government in relation to the kingdom of God. The crucial difference is if this kingdom of God is to be realized on earth, now, um, in the near future, or upon Christ's return. The Marxist, the Marxist at this point, seems to be at distinct odds with the Christian message. Marx saw a necessary end to religion. Marx saw that Christianity gave people a vision of what a better world would be. They were not content with the world as is. They looked to God's coming kingdom. So that gave them a vision of what society should be. This also consoled Christians to bear up under undue oppression until God came again. Yet, Marx considered Christianity as opiate to the masses because he felt that Christianity in painting the kingdom of God to come in some distant future in seeking to see massive structural change I'm sorry, I just skipped a line in painting the kingdom of God to come into some distant future kept people in their places of oppression. so basically Marx is saying Christianity is an opiate to the masses because it keeps people in chains because they only look to the kingdom to come rather than making changes now that was his critique uh, Marxism itself is zealously utopian It's very idealistic in seeking to see massive structural change where every person may be under their own vine, to quote Isaiah, and zealously this worldly. Um, Because of this, the Marxist seeks for an imminent kingdom. That means a kingdom on earth that can be established by human power, one that can be accomplished now with us. It can be accomplished through class struggle into society, until society can be f- freed from inequalities altogether. Um, the problem with that is that they need the state to coerce freedom for all people. This is one of the ironies of neo-Marxism. Now, this question of how to think about the kingdom of God and how Christians might relate to it has been an ongoing tension throughout the history of the church. If the kingdom of God is to come, how is it to come? And how should that lead us to think about the government and unjust structures? You see everything in the Christian church from a posture to hole up together into the world burns to a posture of trying to evangelize and heal all the nations to hasten God's kingdom. You, you, you have those extremes and then everything in between amongst Christian churches. Today, many young evangelicals, particularly those influenced by Marxism, are simply suspicious of capitalism And the political process that keeps it churning. They see a traditional conservative Christianity tied up with capitalism. One only needs to look at the recent evangelical support of Trump to see the merits of their thinking. This only exacerbates the fuel for many young evangelicals to look to their left. Instead of seeking a reform of capitalism, or uh, instead of seeking reform for capitalism, for example, they simply want to get rid of it and perhaps seek something akin to a classless society. They are calling for more radical reforms to create equality for all. Now, there can be disagreement amongst North American Christians over the best economic practices and the best forms of agreement, um, government. So we can disagree about that, that's no problem. We should be thankful that that is something we can discuss in our respective countries. That was not possible for early Christians, for instance, to debate the role of government or like, if they wanted this party or that party. Uh, and, uh, and In fact, for many people around the world, they don't have a lot of democratic discussion. So as we disagree over things, we should be thankful that we can still have these frank conversations about economics and politics. Um, <clears throat> some people see liberalism as idealism And some people see conservatism as realism i think we probably need a bit of both the christian calls for a bit of both we need a bit of both and have that tension however to further discussion around issues of social justice uh, particularly the marxist form of overcoming structural sin as i've been laying them out in this talk i want to help us see how the bible looks at this Um, first we should see that political authority is considered one of god's good creations Okay. Political authority is considered one of God's creations, so it's shocking to read from Peter: "Submit yourselves to the um, for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor." Or from Paul, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Or even from Jesus himself to Pilate. Jesus answered, You, have, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. While Christians may disagree over the best form of government or the best economic policies, Christians must recognize that the government is seen as both an agent, a servant of God, in creation and in redemption. (coughs) So we read from Paul in his letter to the Colossians, For in Jesus Christ all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Or as Paul Marshall puts it, uh, a theologian, the gospel itself has its place in political power. Um, Peter writes, It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So there's a lot of positive speech about the government. And about, uh, about ruling authority, political authorities. Yet, seeing political authority as an agent of God does not suggest that whatever a political authority does is condoned by God. Peter wrote that Christians should honor the emperor at the time of Nero. He was not a friend of Christians. So when he says honor the emperor, he's speaking of Nero. He's not saying Nero is a good guy. Walter Wink, a person who helped lead nonviolent protests against apartheid in South Africa, wrote in his books Powers That Be that since all of life is spiritual, we must see that even structures and institutions are spiritual. They may be used for evil or for good. This means that we cannot write off political authority simply because it is oppressive. To be combative and dominant against systems of domination is only to perpetuate the evil system. Yet this does not mean one can, that one has to remain passive. Rather, there are other ways to transform structural evil. Martin Luther King did a lot for civil rights for African Americans through nonviolent marches. The voting rights for women also <clears throat> came through early 20th century evangelical women. These two movements were shaped importantly by God's coming kingdom for present structure. So they see God's coming kingdom as a a prophetic critique about current systems, while at the same time trusting in God to bring his kingdom. Instead of trying to accomplish God's kingdom through human power, they trusted in God bringing about transformation uh, in God's way, by his spirit's power in his timing. So the Christian, um, with this eternal view to the kingdom of God, may take a long view of history, and a long view of government and politics. Um, and, that, and that enables the Christian to look away from the current madness of making changes now, in hopes that changes can be happen for your children, like Martin Luther King. The Christian may also take the long view backwards in order to think about how we might move forward creatively and um, now, and into the future. So here's my final, final thing. Very short. Some ways looking forward by looking into the past. Uh, I've mentioned some movements already, like the civil rights movement with leaders like Martin Luther King and the women's suffrage movement, both led evangelical um, by evangelicals. Um, but I want to start with this, this one phrase from uh, the Apostle James. And he wants to define what true religion is. And I want you to hear these two aspects. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So social concern and social action, and also moral purity. From the very beginning, we see Christians being active in the proclamation of the whole gospel in the New Testament letters of God's good news, which was liberation from sin and death through the work of Jesus Christ. This news relativized the power dynamics between people and people groups and radically reshaped social relationships within community, (coughs) particularly Christian community. Personal transformation led to social and political transformation. Early Christians brought the plight of the poor to the forefront, And we see Paul continually calling on Christians to give to one another so that none should suffer. The early church brought about a revolution in sexual ethics, bringing a face to those who suffered prostitution and slavery, which was also kind of um, used for sex. With the rich and the masters, they were equal brothers in Christ, um, brothers and sisters of Christ to prostitutes and slaves. So word and act have always attended a faithful witness to the gospel of Christ. And from the early church onward, we see a major transformation in personal life and in society brought about by Christians when they are faithful to God with the whole gospel. Uh, We see 16th century reformers calling kings and popes to account under the authority of Scripture rather than to look to, um, to other means of political power, and it brought about a revolution. It gave power to citizens as equal heirs, and dignity to ordinary work on the farm and in the guilds. William Weberforce long fought for the abolition of slavery, but not many people know that this, his abolition of slavery was part and parcel of the reformation of morals in England. Uh, England was a political mess, very corrupt. In the 18th century, John and Charles Wesley preached the gospel at the prison gallows and brought about major prison reforms. Or hear from Georgette Bennett, Bennett, a Jewish woman, from the Huffington Post, who wants to dismiss the idea that evangelicals have been ineffective for social change. Let me quote her. In the early 20th century, confronted with an excess of poverty, alcoholism, illness, inequality, racial tensions, problems faced by immigrants, crime, the evangelical Christian conscience responded with social activism. Many from that community were immersed in the abolition movement, public health measures, the settlement house movement, the establishment of adoption agencies, the temperance movement, improvement of schools, enforced education for the poor, women's suffrage, among others, and ultimately the civil rights movement. Many of these movements in pursuit of social justice required the intervention of government, and this was, in fact, partly driven by the contribution of evangelical Christianity to progressive social causes. But at the same time, you can hear by the temperance movement and these things, they were also calling for Christian morality as a form of social change. Not dismissing it for Marxist change. We are able to see movements by evangelicals today, and I'm just going to give you two examples. By a Canadian charity, Cardus, who started a journal to think reflectively on issues in Canada and also the U.S., or The Witness, Um, The Witness is very interesting. I just found out about it. It's a black Christian collective engaging issues of religion, race, justice, and culture from a biblical perspective. Um, All these movements did not lead to a loss of faith in Christian orthodoxy, but to a renewed hope in the holistic message of Christ, one that sees our dignity coming from God, that sees everyone's need for repentance, that calls us into a radically new community, That seeks ways to transform authorities over us in ways that respect how God has made them to function, and that prays ultimately thy kingdom come. So is social justice the end goal of Christianity? No. If you've been waiting for that answer. (laughs) It is a goal of Christianity. Okay, that's important. It's not the end goal, but it is a goal of Christianity. But the problem comes when social justice does because the, becomes the end goal as it does with Christian Marxism. It subsumes everything, including the gospel, into acts of social justice. But when this is done, the gospel can be lost. The fullness of what the gospel proclaims personally and culturally. Um, when acts of justice become part and parcel of the overall vision of Christianity, we can see a way forward. The end goal of Christianity is ultimately the glory of God. For the flourishing of creation. Okay. Uh, This is a time for discussion. Um, If you want me to clarify. Or if you want to go down a rabbit trail. We can do that. Um, If you want to. um, Make any comments. You're free to disagree. I'm happy about that. Yeah.
1: I I just have a a question. As regards the civil rights movement, and the fact that it was clearly led by um, Christian evangelicals. One of the fundamental principles of the civil rights movement was peaceful civil disobedience. Mm. Does that not conflict with Paul's guidance as regards following the the edicts of the (coughs) governing bodies because they have been appointed by God?
0: No, I I don't think that... um uh so when when a society, so they were not so when the early Christians as you re, you can read in Revelation uh, that when Caesar says okay you have to bend the knee to me and when when the early Christian was called to bend the knee they would have to say Caesar is lord but they would refuse and so they would be martyred right understood so there is an act of civil disobedience there
1: Okay, but it's a very different act in in kind, because the government was not telling the leaders of the civil rights movement to bend a knee to them. They were saying that what you are doing is unacceptable to us, and we are the government. And therefore, in accordance with Paul's guidance, those evangelicals should have followed that guidance, if I'm understanding what Paul said.
0: If you're saying that the, the early Christians should have bent the knee, no, sorry, oh.
1: I, I'm, I'm coming forward to the 60s. Okay. I'm talking about Martin Luther King and company.
0: No, uh, no, I mean, so the, the government falls, so the government is there, but but Paul would say not only that there needs to be a respect for authority, but it needs to be a respect under um, of authority under God. And so, if the government is, um, so there's a sense of honoring the government. Martin Luther King was um, abiding by the laws of the land, and there was civil disobedience. If he needed to go to jail, he would go to jail. Okay. And um, this happened, but, but in- he
1: was he was being told repeatedly, even by the president himself, mm-hmm. that he needed to not do what he was doing. Right. What was the was the president? But doesn't
0: but if the president but just because the president the president says don't do something. If it's if it's unjust or if it's wrong, then the Christian has room for civil disobedience. There, is to say that the government has authority doesn't mean that you do what the government whatever the government tells you to do.
1: Okay, I, I'm not. I, I'm I'm hearing Paul's words differently, and, and that's right. why I'm really seeking clarification. on. Yeah, uh, you go ahead. <coughs> I'm sorry. I, I agree with the
2: point, the point that you're making. And okay. I hope that I can try
1: and clarify. Well, then there's
0: also we ought to obey. You be the judge who should re obey, God or man?
2: Yeah. So based, so so if we're if we're taking those two comparisons of slavery, basically slavery in the, in <coughs> the New Testament times, and then slavery in America in the South or wherever, um, then how how is like the understanding that you shouldn't run away, exa- for example, from your from your uh, master, with the New How is that different from supporting slaves running away in the South? Um, is, that, is
0: that are those two things equal um, no I mean <clears throat> yeah um, first of all I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to speak on all every no, issue <laughs> but uh, and I don't think that they're necessarily I do think that there, there's context for these things uh, because the Roman government is quite distinct from the American government in terms of procedural justice and ways of, uh, America has ways of, um, civil disobedience, kind of written in democratic, uh, democracy. Now, when the, when the president says, you know, like, okay, if when Paul was sending back Philemon, I mean, uh, back to Philemon, uh, he was, he was actually, he was using power to relativize power. Because Paul himself, because the, the slave went to Paul because he was a friend of Philemon. Mm-hmm. And so it seems that Onesimus wasn't just running away. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like there was some kind of probably social or um, probably domestic unrest between Philemon and Onesimus.
2: So he felt like he could get justice and perhaps.
0: Paul, yeah. Or Paul would at least give him advice, or Paul would give him advocacy.
2: Yeah, can I jump in there? Or,
3: sorry, go mind. ahead. Uh, do, sorry, did I cut in there?
0: Are you go bringing ahead. up a new topic, or are you talking about what we're
3: Jumping doing? in with this. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, a couple things to mind. Well, I'm remembering Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, saying, and he's not the Bible, but I have a Bible thing in mind too, it, making the distinction between... Um, a just law and an unjust law, and discussing how that the laws of the land conflict, conflict, conflict with, I got a cold so bear with me conflict with um the laws of God and the dignity that should be given to every basic human, which is a distinction made between the slavery of uh, the Roman culture that there's still uh, there's still a means for dignity, whereas the structure would be completely different anyway. Martin Luther King Jr. says that it's a duty of a Christian to um, resist that law in obedience to God. Now, he's not the Bible, mm-hmm. so I'm, I see the weak point there. So, that being said, uh, returning back to uh, Walter Wink, who who quotes um, the Gospels, he talks about Jesus as the third way. So, he references examples such as, I'm not going to go through them all, but like, the idea of, you know, it's, it, when someone smacks you on your your right cheek, you turn cheek. to your left. The meaning of that is a third option. It's not, so it's not simply, and this is one interpretation of that, right? So, I mean, Jordash is the resident coin uh, a scholar here, but <laughs> um, one way of looking at that is that it's meant to to be nonviolent, but to shame the person, it, it is forceful in a very different paradigm. So mm-hmm. for example, if someone hits you and you turn to them your left, well in that culture I think it was the, the whatever hand, I'm mixing them up maybe, was for uh, wiping the butt and you would never hit somebody with that so you're bringing on, you're taking on that shame on yourself when you're putting that person in that situation. Same thing with the Roman law where uh, you walk a mile, you force them to walk another, and you go, no, 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 I got it, I will carry this for you, sir. Well, they would get in trouble, because they were so orderly, maybe the uh, proto-Nazis, we could say, um, that that they would get in trouble, because that went against the established rules of the time. So the idea, the concept, is to take on the power, absorb it, and... And transmuted, and that's a, that's essentially what Christ did on the cross. Like we <coughs> talked about this earlier today, Josh and I. So this is like serendipitous, but um, <laughs> the idea that all this happened in Christ's time, like they had structural um, um, imperfection and all that kind of stuff, and they wanted to topple the kingdom. And they said, the Jews at the time said, "Jesus, you're here to uh, destroy the temple and vindicate us." And his answer was, this is a paraphrase, but it was like, "Yeah." maybe, like, it wasn't, it was like, I'm going to do that, but not in the way you're thinking. So anyway, that's a, that's, I'll, cu- I'll cut it off there.
0: Uh. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there, uh, <coughs> now, to say, to say, honor the emperor, <coughs> uh, respect all authority, um, is not meaning to say, it means that they have their, They're they're an agent, and they have a role under God, but they cannot supersede that role. Uh, And so when they supersede that role, they, um, to say, uh, uh, Hitler says, kill the Jews. Do you hide a Jew as a Christian? Because you're going against the political...
1: uh, Okay, I, I, I guess where I'm seeing this as being different is that when you're drawing an example like... Hitler says, kill the Jews, that is clearly and patently immoral and clearly and patently um, proscribed in the Bible. Thou shalt not kill. It's different, and and again, this is just how I'm interpreting it, and I'm I'm seeking clarification. Um, It's different to me if, if I am being civilly disobedient Um, to a legal authority um, when the Bible is telling me that I should subjugate myself to that authority.
0: But you should subjugate yourself insofar as it doesn't contradict God's laws.
1: And which of God's laws were contradicted? Racism?
0: in In the civil rights?
1: Yeah. Uh, help me, help me understand, please. Where in God's laws does it speak to racism, other than that you are entitled to enslave those you conquer?
0: Well, no. I mean, slavery was constantly being, um, even even in the Old Testament law. So there, s- slavery was an institution that existed throughout sure. the the period in which the Bible was written. Okay. <coughs> but the Bible is never prescribing slavery. Now, it's when it makes allowances for slavery. Uh, it it has it in such a way that you know it's, they're constantly like the the Israelites were constantly uh, being told, do not hold slaves, particularly of Israelites, because you were a freed people, mm-hmm. not because of ethnicity, but because of a shared legacy of God's redemption. Even those who they would you know take in war and stuff and these they would they would say you need to give them rest. Uh, you need to welcome them and uh, and have basically ways of treating them with dignity. Now, I see that there's lots of laws in Moses as, um, as God's accommodation to cultural practices. So they weren't eternal laws. Uh, um, not all laws were eternal laws of the same import. Like the Ten Commandments um, are of a different structure and different intent than, let's say, the two cloths being woven together,
1: you see? Okay. Um, and they were, they were... Caught- that, that's your choice and interpretation of, of those passages, right?
0: Well, it's not just a personal choice. I mean, because if you look at slavery, I mean, just the principle of Scripture interprets Scripture is a, is a basic mm-hmm. hermeneutical approach. Sure. And a faithful hermeneutical approach. You, you have to say, okay, well, if these two things seem to uh don't jive or or they seem paradoxical or in contradiction with one another how are they resolved <laughs> so we, we need to allow those things so does god does god choose or do or do humans choose this relationship with god like how does that work and so sometimes they're, they're held in tension but in relationship to uh even with uh uh even with, yeah, so with, with slavery itself, there it was an institution that existed, but that was constantly being un, uh, undercut uh, through the liberation of the slave from um, Egypt. Uh, now, there were times when God would send him into slavery as uh, a discipline, but even when he did that as a discipline, he punished those who did it. Okay. 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 Um, and so always slavery was never the final goal for people. And Israel was, is, um, is an example of what's supposed to be true for all people, which um, we come to understand through Jesus, that the message that's given to the Jews is supposed to go out to all, the message to the Gentiles. And so this message that they receive um, of, of liberation from slavery and from bondage um, is, supposed to, uh, is supposed to be for all people. And so that even when Jesus speaks of liberation, he's talking about liberation that's not only of something spiritual, but something that's spiritually, um, because spirituality will touch all aspects of life. Okay. And so when you have the master-slave relationship, uh, Paul's like, okay, you have this master-slave relationship, um, but treat one another as brothers and sisters. Okay? Uh, it's, not a, it's not a maintaining the institution of slavery, uh, but it is, it is um, you might call it the thin end of the wedge. Okay. Uh, it, there's a social radic- There's a social reordering that's happening amongst, let's say, Philemon and Nesimus that is changing the actual structure of slavery. Uh, how women and men were supposed to relate to one another actually uh, radically reoriented how husbands' wives saw each other in the ancient world <coughs> uh, and the rich and the poor. So, so slavery was not something that's supposed to be a permanent institution of God's design, but it was something that was brought about by sin that was never the end goal for humanity and for human flourishing. So when I look at the Civil Rights Movement, you know um, what, and so I was spe- speaking about uh, uh, the Bible speaking against racism because it'd be like, you're all made. You know, Paul would say, there's neither Greek nor Scythian, okay. mm-hmm. barbarian. Um, there's no barbarian. And so he, he's speaking about, you know, there's equality among all. So there should be no racism within. Um, there's, there, there should be no racism among among a Christian church. There is at times, but that's when they're being unfaithful to Scripture. And so when Martin Luther King is calling for equal dignity... Because he points to the American Constitution and saying we're all created equally, yeah. um, inalienable rights given by the Creator, um, he's saying that's a check that has not been cashed. You know, it was a promissory note, and so he's calling America not to live in, not to create new laws, but to live into the promises of that that their laws had, but they had not yet lived up to. And so, in that sense, he's calling for a common humanity among civil dis- disobedience, but a type of civic disobedience. That f- that is a way of functioning in America democracy. That doesn't. It's not like the same of like, if Paul's marching along the, um, marching in the same way in Rome, it's not going to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. But with the American uh, the the system that the constitutional democracy that it has, it was a faithful way of witnessing to, um, to breaking down the barriers of racism.
1: Thank you. Yeah. You
0: sure?
1: Yeah, sure. it okay. yeah, Still not it's, totally on side with you. Okay, but, you know, okay. I, that's I, I understand you. your perspective. Okay, Thank that's, that's okay. what I was looking for. Yeah,
0: great. Yeah. We can talk about it later if you yeah. want. Okay.
4: Yeah. Hey, thanks for the the talk and I I really like the idea of um the focus on a common humanity as opposed to a common enemy. I think that boils down the whole issue to a very nice succinct statement. Mm-hmm. I also like your uh, look at how not everything that was you know uh s- stated in the laws of moses uh, in the law of moses uh, is something that should be you know perpetuated for eternity there's there, there's lower standards and higher standards and and jesus and and other contemporaries of jesus also determine which laws are weightier that's right you know there's th- that's not a new concept so i appreciate that I had a question about, um, I love the letter to Philemon, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. I had a question about your reading there where, if I understood correctly, you're, you're seeing Paul sending Onesimus back and asking Philemon to, to, to keep him as a slave. Is that correct? Did I hear that right?
0: Well, yeah, I see him as returning to the household of Philemon and that Onesimus needs to return. Um, he says, receive him as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. So, um, can I,
4: can I correct that? Yeah, because I, I actually, it's the funniest thing. I actually memorized the letter to Philemon last year with a friend of mine, mm. uh, in Greek. Mm. And uh, that line goes, um, mm. he says, uh, If you consider me common at all, receive him as you would receive me no longer as a slave
2: Mm.
4: but much more than a slave but much more than a slave as a brother Mm. but that no longer is an important thing because not every translation will absolutely nail that that's interesting so from my reading of the text Mm. he's sending him back and he's he's saying I could command you but I won't He's playing all these nice games, yes, like, that's right. prepare room for me, I'm going to come <coughs> visit you, but Answer God might answer your prayers and I'll show up. And, yes. But he's also saying, without actually abolishing slavery, he's basically saying, you know, receive him no longer as a slave.
1: Mm. If I can yeah. comment on that, the, the one other thing that that made me think, when, when you were talking about it, you were saying that uh, Paul was speaking with power against the power of, uh, oh, of yeah. Rome. Yeah, and my brain immediately said Paul was speaking with authority against yeah. the power of Rome. He was speaking with the authority of God. Yeah, that's right. Not with power. Would well, that
0: right? Yeah, the authority would be right. Okay. That that would be that would be better said. I can't find where I have this, and I don't have my <clears throat> Bible in my hand. But because um, I can't remember how I quoted it. Sure. Do you remember?
4: Um, I thought you had. S- I can't remember precisely. I thought you were Oh, was here saying. it is.
0: Yes. Oh, actually, um, I said Philemon is to receive back his runaway slave Onesimus no longer as a slave, but more than a slave. Okay. Hmm. A beloved brother.
4: That would, that's correct. Yeah.
0: Um, and that's, and that's Richard, ba- um, Richard Baucom's um, translation. Right. So, yeah, yeah, um. But what he does say in that regard, he said that, um, and so maybe we can uh, question his interpretation. But he said uh, the legal form of slavery is retained, but master and slave are to relate no longer as master and slave, but as brothers.
4: I mean, I would like to. I don't want to dismiss an argument out of hand without reading it. I like I like Richard Balkum stuff too, generally. uh, but I, from my reading of it, it, it's fairly clear in the Greek. He's saying receive him no longer as a slave, Mm. but more than a slave. So that in English m- somebody might translate this incorrectly as receive him no longer as just a slave, mm-hmm. but more. Than, but that's not what the language is yeah. saying. So,
0: no, that's helpful. Um,
4: it's, it kind of reminds me of there's one place in First Corinthians where he says, you know, how were you when you when you first got saved? What were you? Were you a Jew? Don't try to become a gentile. Were, gen- were you a slave? That, you know. Well, well, actually, if you're a slave, try to get free if you can. Yes, that's right. But for everyone else, he's like, just stay who you are. But if you're a slave, well, I'll try to get free if you can. But otherwise, stay as a slave.
0: That's right. Yeah, that's yeah. really helpful. And that answer, you know, that's you can see that even Paul himself is. But there were ways that a slave could find freedom. So he wasn't calling for someone to run away. Right. But he was calling for someone to go through proper channels.
4: That's a great point. And, 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 and Paul says, hey, and if he owes you anything, I'll pay for all of it. That's right. So he's actually offering to financially pay for his freedom if he has to. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's right. So was that? So would the difference have been with that
2: and slavery in the South that you couldn't you couldn't have those legal channels to get to buy your freedom?
0: Uh, you know, I'm not totally positive about um, the American South and how, but uh, as far as I understand, you could not buy your own freedom, but you could escape and get to a place, and there might be a um, uh, there's kind of a clause that if you go into another place, it's almost like into the north, mm-hmm. they're not going to send you back. Right. And so from what I understand, Frederick Douglass, um, you know, had somehow gotten away and become a statesman, you mm-hmm. know, a uh, remarkable person. So, no, it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same. But, of course, uh, there was great civil disobedience there with the um, the Underground Railroad, yeah. you know. And there was a lot of uh, Christians behind that. Um, but You know, it's interesting, William Wilberforce and the Clapham sect actually um, had people in ways to try to abolish slavery. Not only did they try to reform the morals of society, but they would send <coughs> people, uh, they would send, and they would go personally and record the, um, the situations of the slaves. This is how they're fed, this is how often they sleep, this is what they need to do. Uh, This is how they die of disease and all this kind of thing. And then sent those to the churches. And so then the pastors would start preaching and reading these things. And that's how the social action started happening. Because people are like, oh, this slavery is actually, we're going. And so slavery uh, was abolished by making uh, an argument saying we're going against our own morals. Mm -hmm. Where in other societies where slavery was, it was the overthrowing of power. But among Christian nations, it was you're, we're going against our own moral uh, values, our own morals. Um, so. Anyone else?
3: Downhill from here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Getting into the controversy.
3: Yeah. The weeds. Well, it's, I mean, smooth sailing from here. Sorry.
0: Oh, smooth sailing. Yeah. No, we got over the weeds. Yeah. Okay, great.
4: What do you propose as an alternative model for, like, more concrete examples of, of something you might propose for an alternative model for affecting change? What do you mean? Um, so, the young evangelicals, as, as you've summarized it, uh, want to... Um, distance themselves from government from so forth because Trump has been elected and it, this is like a crazy uh, situation and mm-hmm. how did this, how did we get here? And so one way is to just distance yourself from everything and, and sort of become more critical and work from grassroots. And I, you know, I'm not sure mm-hmm. exactly, I'm mm-hmm. not that well read on these, the mm-hmm. movements and, and this and the, you mentioned a couple of, of groups uh, and uh, publications, Mm -hmm. um what other what other ideas concrete ideas might there be or other people
0: well I mean I think that we need to sometimes one thing I respect about Canadians over Americans and I'm an American who has become a Canadian so I'm both Um, Americans often think federally Canadians often think locally um, I, I find that Canadians are more often involved at the local level and thinking about, oh, you know, uh, how to promote like protect this piece of land and how to work with this this um, so Central Sandwich is very much thinking about Central Sandage. But in America, it's just election time, you know. Uh, and so I really have come to really appreciate the Canadian posture toward politics. As something locally, and that's also shaped by the political process of show, um, voting at the federal level through your writing, um, and where where Americans have direct vote. Um, well, I think Christians should think about that. Start acting locally in order to engage globally. Uh, some evangelical Christians want to go big or go home. You know, let's just get a seat on the Supreme Court. And then I've done my Christian duty, you know, for my generation or something like that. Mm. Uh, rather than thinking, okay, what are the responsibilities in my neighborhood? What are the, what are the social responsibilities of my neighbors and of where I live? <coughs> kind of a where, Wendell Berry type of idea of being in place. <coughs> uh, but in the midst of that, I, you know, um, uh, I think that there has to be both word and act. So, on Bowen, I, I mean, I'm not saying that a, ser- a person has to say, I'm going to help you, and here's a tract um, about the gospel. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that that can't be viable. Uh, but I think that that's a very impersonal uh, economic way of handling people. It, it, it um, almost, I see it as going against the very fiber of what the gospel is about, as the whole person or relationship and whatnot. But uh, I do believe that when a person is socially engaged that they should also be known of why they are engaging. Like, what, what are the ideas behind that? It doesn't always have to be in the face, but it also shouldn't be hidden, um, almost like cowardly, uh, which is understandable. <laughs> uh, but on, yeah, you know, place where we lived, we saw people very active in doing lots of care for the community, but nobody knew they were Christians. Because to do that would have, um, they felt that would have hindered their ability to help or people wouldn't have wanted to receive it or something like that. But it also, but the thing is, it it can be, this catch 22 is like, well, I never see Christians helping people. Well, it's just the Christians aren't talking about it, you know? And there's like, well, I wish Christians would help. They just, they just didn't talk about it. Well, there are. Um, but there's a problem of saying, but then there's no examples that well, actually I am, I'm fed to help because of what I believe. Um, I find libri helpful personally because it enables us to be able to say what we think and also to live differently in our home and in our, in our, in our, in how we welcome people and whatnot. There's word and act there. Um, I think that if that can happen in other ways or people in their work, I think it's just let's start small rather than go big or go home, um, but but when people do create collectives like Cardis, like the Witness, I think those are really remarkable ways. Um, I know people do that in downtown East Side. Um, I've seen I've seen people create a friendship center uh, where they're handing out food and also saying, "Can I pray with you?" Uh, and if the person says no, it'd be like, "Okay." And there's friendships built, and I saw that happen, where people respected them, they knew they were Christians, but they didn't want prayer. But at times when they were in need, they did. And so, there, it was, there was something that was word and act together. So word and act together, locally, and however that fits. I
2: have a
3: question. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to try and answer, that'd be great, but so, <clears throat> Josh and I, we were walking down the ledge grounds today. We saw a protest. That's all. all. (laughs) Um, We saw this protest on climate change. And so one thing that I'm wondering about is, um, like I'm sympathetic to concerns about climate change for sure and stuff like that, but I'm wondering, so one thing I noticed today, for example, there's all these children, very young people, a lot of schools there with placards and they're protesting and stuff like that. It reminded me of, like one thing that I don't like, whether it's right or left or whatever paradigm, I remember Jesus Camp, all these kids protesting mm. uh, abortion. No more. And I, I can't stand that. Like I don't care what the issue is, like weaponizing children <laughs> or ideology, ideological. I, I just can't stand it. And the yeah. school system in all of Canada it does uh, is awful at doing that. I mean, or they're really great at doing that. But um, <laughs> so my question is, so... I don't like that. I don't like a lot of the issues that come, the uh, subtext, a lot of the narratives. I mean, for example, I saw one kid with a uh, sign saying, um, "Why go to school when the future isn't? Uh, when the future what? When, when there is no future? Yeah, something, like something like that. Like right? that. it's like they don't know what they're saying, right? <laughs> they're blah 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 blah. Anyway, my point is this, though. I think that that is, I mean, what's her name, that American, this is a bit of a stretch, but she said, Oxio um, Cortez, or whatever she said.
4: Axio Cortez.
3: Climate change is uh, this generation's World War Three. I don't agree with that exactly, but it's a pertinent issue, and it's a real issue. I, I fully believe that. So, all that being said, what do you think would be the Christian response, or the appropriate response, <clears throat> to addressing such an issue in a responsible way, Um, especially if it is as dire as people claim. Like climate change. Yeah, Yeah. without all these other things that I don't like. Because I I tend to, I'll just cap it with this, I tend to be kind of cynical and I tend to be kind of, I see those things and I'm uh, off-put by it, Mm -hmm. but then it kind of paralyzes me, and I'm like, well, I don't know how I feel about it then. But that's also maybe not the appropriate response either, right? So I wonder, what is the appropriate Christian response?
0: I think, Do I don't know it? if there's one way, but I think that there's various expressions that one can engage in, uh, um, in these discussions. I, I, there's one group called Arasha, um, <coughs> or again, Portuguese. Uh, <coughs> or something like that. Um, that's not how they say it, but it's Arasha. Uh, and it's a uh, Christian organization that is around education and conservancy mostly education around environmental issues and around. Uh, and so they will have Christian biologists and uh, farmers and, and they eat together and they do something quite similar to this and, and kind of have discussions together. Uh, and they get people really used to learning how to make their own crops and mm-hmm. eat good food and to share food with one another and to discuss ideas around it. Uh, I think that's a very good way of trying to engage climate change in a personal way where your hands are getting into the soil rather than just kind of, you know, carrying a protest sign. I'm not saying that pro- carrying a protest sign <laughs> is not good, but I'm just saying that there are, there's there's innumerable ways of trying to engage, uh, I think, environmental, the environmental crisis. Francis Schaeffer, the founder of Brie, wrote a book in 1972 on environment um, called uh, Death and the Pollution of Man or something like that. Uh, and it was one of the very first yeah. books by a Christian on the environmental crisis. So that's helpful. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, just coming back to, to what you said, I, I really like the, your phrase, the weaponization of children. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that this is necessarily a Christian response, but uh, the way that I would approach that, given what you said, is that if you are an adult, you are entitled to express your opinion. You are empowered politically. To express your opinion it's if you want to raise your children in a certain way that is your right as a parent but it it is manipulative to use your child in an environment where that child is too young to truly understand and choose for him or herself the nature of the the protest that he or she wishes to make
0: yeah i totally agree whatever that causes yeah no. exactly
5: Yeah, Yeah. I think that's just what you were talking about, though, in terms of how we're raising this culture of victim—not the victim, but the people getting to speak out without the government or without authority having a chance to answer. Oh right. And I think that's what we're raising our kids to do. We're we're all giving them this freedom of speech so that they can speak and say what they want without sort of anything coming back at them, which I don't think is appropriate for children. I think that. They should have freedom to speech, but be also taught uh, accountability for their speech, mm-hmm. responsibility for what they're saying, so that they have this opportunity to learn how to speak out in a way that is productive.
1: Absolutely.
5: Um, and, I, and I don't think, I think that we are raising, as you said, this generation of, no, we should be allowed to say whatever we want, and it's going to be against the man instead of the, the against the enemy instead of um, collective humanity.
0: Yeah. And uh, the book uh, by Lukianoff or yeah Lukianoff and Height are is actually a book on that um, the Coddling of the American mind. The subtext is uh, how good intentions are setting our future up for failure, or our children up for failure, or our students up for failure, something like that. Um, and and they're talking about various strands that have actually made us a very fragile, or made the current the young generation very fragile and they point to various strands of like technology. Uh, you only have your own certain loops. Uh, um, they talk about safetyism. Um, and, uh, and one of these things is about on campuses where um, any kind of word that makes someone upset, there's huge protests and getting people thrown out. Good, like people who are saying, I want to hear, and then they will use one trigger word and there will be such protests and microaggressions that those people will, will be forced to quit. Uh, and, and so uh, they were speaking about how there's a good pro- there's a professor who they think is good saying, you know uh, you know you come to university not to be kind of coddled, but basically prepared for boot camp to engage the world and the ideas that you disagree with. And, and I want to prepare you on how to engage ideas you disagree with and how to stand firm in that. Um, so, so yeah, I think that our, jo- you know, our generation is, there's many younger people who are being brought up to feel very fragile about their identity because they're, because they're told that everything else is the problem. And, um, and also, as Leela would say, identity politics sets us up against one another.
4: Um, rather than for one another.
0: <clears throat> okay, well Is there is there yeah. room for a one more. There's one more. Yeah.
4: If when we think about structural injustice or sorry, was there someone else that oh okay. When we think about structural injustice and, and oppression and fighting against a system, and we think about about Jesus, our Messiah, or for those who call him Messiah, right? So the, the prophecies the ancient prophecies about the messiah would that there would be someone who would come and finally bring justice (laughs) to the world this is one of the main things Mm. if you look at the prophecies uh, throughout you know jeremiah isaiah micah etc uh would 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 subdue all of the gentile all of the opposing gentile nations like think of psalm 2 and and other texts would set up a a kingdom that would be an eternal kingdom like it was promised to David. it should be like that and then would have uh like in the days of Solomon some texts talk about people that would come to Judah come to Jerusalem to seek wisdom because mm-hmm. this is the, the thing everything's set in place where where this Messiah figure would rule the entire world and so you can imagine people's frustrations or even some of modern frustrations with the fact that Jesus came and didn't do this at least at least the first time he came and what he did is he got absolutely crushed by a system he got munched mm-hmm. by the you know t- deprived of justice like, Psalm, like Isaiah 22 Fifty two and fifty three talking about uh, and absolutely you know m- uh, uh, destroyed along with the with the with with the unjust uh, and um, that's a fantastic model of how to do some of the things you were mentioning mm-hmm. earlier about being free to love your oppressors. He he talks about you know love your enemies this is a very crazy teaching coming from a Messiah who's supposed to rule the world uh-huh. love your enemies your enemies could be your the imperial power uh-huh. that's oppressing and uh, you know dominating your nation and uh-huh. you want freedom for your nation and on the cross according to Luke when he's being killed he's saying father forgive them
2: uh-huh.
4: and this is this is this is our Messiah and this is one of the reasons I worship him
2: uh-huh.
4: because he teaches us how to be free to love, even when structurally we are being significantly oppressed and crushed.
0: Yeah, and you know, and that was Peter's comment about uh, slaves honor, you know, respect your masters, even if they are harsh. And then he points to Christ's suffering. But you know, in the sixth, the 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 movement of liberation theology in Latin America and South America, um, there was a, a Roman Catholic teaching. That they felt really kept people within unjust systems and not allowing and never having change. And that was uh, suffer like Christ. And, and that's where, you know, Marx would say, well, that just keeps people from ever acting, you know, in, in, in a form of, of changing the system. And of course, the liberation theologians would take it to say, no, we need, we like what Marx said. You know, uh, we're, we're it is the opiate of the masses. We're not, you know, changing, and but we're aware of the system. We need change. And so let's, you know, revolution, you know, uh, Che Guevara and all this kind of stuff. But there's, um, and so I think it's absolutely true. And I, I mean, 100% agree with you that we need to look to Christ and how he suffered unjustly, but God honored him, raised him from the dead. And so that is way of saying, actually, ultimate justice will affirm Jesus in spite of what the systems say. The powers have a limited voice, but God has an eternal voice and, uh, and has the power to raise from the dead. Uh, so and there, there is a sense of saying, OK, I need to look for God's justice. At the same time, uh, it doesn't mean that we need to remain passive. It also doesn't mean that we need to have a revolution. Uh, but there are ways of living tor- for the transformation of society by how we suffer, um, and looking for patience. And so I think Martin Luther King, uh, he suffered in such a way that brought about transformation. Uh, there, Wilberforce laid down his life for this thing, and um, uh, and yet he did an amazing good, amazing transformation without revolution, without passivity, but trying to abide in Christ in the ways that were allowed to him. You know, even Paul um, uh, called onto his own citizenship in order that the gospel might keep going because he was looking for legal means. So I totally agree with you, but I'm just wanting to add that to say Mm -hmm. some people find that the churches will lean on its laurels and sometimes even its materialism. And to say, well, you know, I'm just going to <laughs> live at the foot of the cross and, and, and not worry about anyone else and mm-hmm. or, or not try to change anything. So there has to be, you know, like you're saying the third way, like nonviolent resistance or something like that. <coughs> so, yeah, but thanks. Okay. Uh, last, last call?
2: I, I, I would like to say Okay, sorry. I thought I saw your hand. I'm very involved with people who do stuff. I mean, I appreciate your <coughs> allusions to um, England, to America, to theologians. Um, but Richard Wurmbrand is a man who's greatly influenced my life, who, for his faith, was imprisoned for 15, 18 years. Mm. And, um, you know, there's, there are men and women. Who I consider my family in Eritrea, who've been in crates for ten years, one by one, their guards, their prison guards, are being transformed. Mm. They're not. Mm. They're not in any system. Their mm. life is hidden in Jesus Christ, and um, they die there, or they are uh, given freedom and liberated. Um, Azia Bebe, she's been given the um, death. Penalty because she took water with a Muslim woman. Yeah, I right read about that. Um, eight years she's been in prison, uh, waiting for their death. Uh, five children. This is very common mm. in the world. We're in La Land, mm-hmm. having discussions. It's wonderful. But Richard used to teach us: be prepared to go underground because it won't always be like this. Mm. And um, don't be surprised when you don't get a a charitable donation recognition by the government. I mean, little by little, um, it will happen. And those who are in prison there pray for us here, because they know how distracted we are. So I would just encourage each one of us, one by one, to be salt and light and uh, not afraid wherever we're called to be, if it looks like we're going backwards, because we're not. Following the vocation which we started to follow, and we're, we're called to be servants to make others successful always.
0: Yeah, I do think that there there can be a. Um, uh, <clears throat> I think that we become forgetful of what's happening in the world. Yes, uh, you know, with with all the information we get yeah. of all these, and you and you know, people have you inoculate yourself against. All this because just the bad news comes and comes and comes until you're just like yeah. numb to it all mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not personal. Mm-hmm. But it's not impersonal to them all the time. And so it, it's it's healthy for us to, I mean, like you said, you know faces and people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I know this man who works with um, persecuted Christians around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Though, I mean, I think he, I mean, he thinks persecution of all people is wrong, but he particularly stands for persecuted Christians and it's happening all the time Mm -hmm. in egregious and unjust ways. And so, uh, so yeah, it it is good to be mindful of, of the world climate.
2: Well, and to walk with Christ daily, Uh, you know, know, it's, it's a daily step by step because none of us have, have arrived until our last breath. That's the faith that
0: we end up yeah with. yeah that's true yeah I mean and yeah I mean to be mindful of these people in these other countries yeah. uh, you know um, should one give us Thanksgiving that we do have the freedom that we have, but also more courage to, mm-hmm. to see that you know um, as as controversial as the figure is Jordan Peterson, uh, whatever one might think of him, I really like when he said, um, uh, someone said, aren't you afraid of the violence that you see at your protests? And he said, I'm more afraid of the violence that would happen if I did not speak up. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I'm I'm using that as an example of sometimes, uh, you know, silence actually perpetuates injustice. Or it it, it can ill prepare us if we're not speaking up when Mm -hmm. we can I just had one comment of all of it. partly to what you said just, it's not what you know it's who you know, you know it's walking with him daily in friendship you no know, matter what our influence is mean. so we can bring up what happens here and there in different parts of the world but we can find it all in Victoria mm. in some measure so that's true Okay, well, thank you, and have a good night.